Good morning. Before we get to the scripture, we're going to start with an illustration uh, from, from the world of football, as I said off camera. This, this may be the most... Oh, that was a new track starting? Yes. Here we go. All right, if anybody's been following NFL football this season, I myself am a Canadian football fan, so my, I start following football a little earlier. But anyway, one of the, probably the best team this season is uh, the San Francisco 49ers at this point. Now, maybe by the end of the season they'll stink. But right now they are, they're doing very, very well. And one of the neat things about that is their quarterback their quarterback is a guy who was their number three last year. His name is Brock Purdy. And he had a title when he was drafted. He was Mr. Irrelevant because he was taken with the very last pick in the draft. So the, all the teams got together and they said there were 333 players they would rather have than this guy. The man he replaced... The man they got rid of to keep him was a player who was drafted number three overall. So sometimes we're not really good at picking who, who is really going to be right for a job. Sometimes somebody will look just stunningly qualified and shining, and, and that's not the way that works out. This being New England, I will mention that we used to have a quarterback up here that some considered fairly good, who was drafted in the sixth round. That means five times every team in the NFL looked at this guy and said, he's kind of scrawny. Let's pass on to somebody else. And of course, Tom Brady went on to be arguably, you're nodding like, oh, that's who you meant. <laughs> um, Tom Brady went on to be arguably the, the best quarterback uh, in, in NFL history. So sometimes we look at things and we overlook things because we're not, we're enamored of certain qualities that maybe aren't the things that really count. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, and we're going to be reading Pasta a chapter division, but the chapter divisions come much later, and it's, it's quite clear that these are linked in the original text. So Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what, must, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what's good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, said the young man, what do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out in the early morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they said. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard came to and said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one hired, and go on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came, came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. This opens with this story of a rich young man running up to Jesus. The the original language, there's more of a suddenness to this. And it's come just after Jesus has given a parable about being about not preventing little children from coming to him, just of, of how open the kingdom is. So he's just made this statement about the kingdom of heaven belonging to people like children. We talked last week about the fact that children don't bring anything to the table, that all they are is loved, and that's why they can come, because they're loved. They're not bringing a resume or anything to earn them entry. So Jesus has just said that. And this guy comes running up and says, hey, teacher, what good thing must I do to get, translation here is eternal life. The the phrase is actually the life of the kingdom. We tend to look at uh, the gospel as a matter of, because of how we've been conditioned to read it, we, we tend to think of it as, eternal life like do I get to go to heaven do you know 
or, or what, whatever. Do I get to go to heaven? Do I escape hell? The gospel is actually much more concerned with the whole work of, of God and his redemption. And what's being asked here is, what do I need to do to be part of this redeemed new creation? So it's not just, what do I need to do to be safe in the future? But, oh, by the way, what do I need to do now to enter into this kingdom, which is both to come and here now? How do I become part of this kingdom life? And then Jesus, is, as he often does, answers a question with a question. This is a really good way to sound wise. If you ever find yourself teaching a class of high school students, it's a really good way to sound wise. Answer their questions with a question, especially while you try and think of the actual answer. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He wants them to think. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? He says, there's only one who is good. He's talking about God. He's telling him, why are you asking me about this? Do you know who the good one is? And by extension, do you know who I am? It says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asks. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice anything about that list that comes from the Ten Commandments? But it's not all Ten of the Commandments. What were the ones Jesus didn't tell him to keep there? He didn't repeat the commands about having no other gods before God. He didn't repeat the command about not making idols. He didn't repeat the command about keeping the Sabbath. So whatever the, this person's problem was, whatever was keeping him from fully entering into the kingdom, it wasn't religious observance. At this time, Israel's expression of its, of its Jewishness was found in its worship of God. It was no longer a kingdom. It was occupied by the Romans. It had no political power. But the way they still represented themselves, the way they still thought of themselves as God's people, was now in temple worship and in religious practice. But they were missing something. And this young man really encapsulates this. Jesus doesn't tell him, well, you need to, you need to worship God more. He doesn't tell him, you've got idols in your life. Although, actually, when we get to the end of this, you're going to see he's got a little bit of an idol in his life. He doesn't tell him, you're not observing the Sabbath. He, he asks him about those things, and the young man very assuredly, calmly and assuredly says to him, oh, I've kept all of that, those relational commands. So Jesus says, okay, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He doesn't say, go and sell everything you have and take it to the temple and put it in the offering. I think the young man might have been able to do that. He might have been, oh, what a huge sacrifice for God, but I can do that. Sometimes when we approach this text, we treat it like the problem is that his wealth kept him from God. That could be the case. It could be that he was just so attached to his wealth 
But it's interesting that the way Jesus asked him to deploy that wealth was to give it to the people around him. The gospel and the story of redemption is the story of God redeeming his creation. And Colossians tells us that in Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself. So he wants that vertical reconciliation of everybody restored to him, but he also wants that reconciliation of everybody restored to each other. He wants this to be a kingdom that is also a family. So he gives this command, and it's interesting. We get the word perfect there, if you want to be perfect. But the the sense of the word there is we can think of perfection as, you know, shiny, without any flaw or anything. But really what's being said there is if you want to be complete, if you want to be whole, then do this. And the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus said, he says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. People were scared by that passage. People were really scared by that passage, and they didn't like it. So throughout church history, going back real early, you will find people trying to find an, a, a, a hidden out in this. They'll talk about, oh, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, and a camel had to kneel down to get through it. No, no, that's a later edition. Really, what Jesus means is, this is impossible without God. Not that it requires humility, not that it's extraordinarily effortful. No, it means that without God, this is impossible. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm poor, so I'm okay. But there's a lot of different kinds of riches. For this person, it was his physical riches. But a lot of us, as I kind of talked about last week, a lot of us, when we come to the kingdom, sometimes we think we're bringing something to the kingdom. Now, God made and gifted all of us. And so truly, even though we're not accepted because of our gifts, there are parts of us parts of our personality and everything that are of great service to the kingdom. But that's not what makes us valuable to the kingdom. That's not what brings us to the kingdom. And if we think it is, it will get in the way of us coming into the kingdom. One of my favorite musicians of all time was Rich Mullins, a Christian songwriter. And he had, he had a lot of flaws in his life, and he, he lived an up-and-down life. But he had this really... I, he had, read this interview with him where he said something really profound. He said, when we come to God, we don't just have to give up our vices. And he said, oh, by the way, God will take those out of your life anyway. He says, but we also have to give up our virtues because we're not valuable to God because we're articulate, because we're smart, because we're rich. We're just loved. And if you think you're bringing something else to the game, that can get in the way of you being part of the family. It will make you look good to the world. At this time, wealth was considered a sign of God's favor. Israel of this time would have been very much like India. There's this assumption in India that that your station in life is somehow related to your spiritual worth, 
They believe in a cycle of reincarnation. So if you're a rich, wealthy person, obviously it's because you have a, a, accumulated a lot of merit in previous incarnations. And if you're a beggar, obviously that is because you are somehow wicked in previous lives. Now, they wouldn't have believed in previous lives or anything like that in Israel this time, but they would have thought, you know, if you were fortunate, if you, if you had material wealth, that meant something about your relationship with God. Somehow you were right with God. And if you were a beggar, well, you know, we don't want to say it, but, uh, you know, there's probably something wrong. Incidentally, this is, we would not phrase it this way, but this is actually a view in the country we live in. We have this understanding that you can achieve through hard work in our, in our country. We pride ourselves on the fact that we have an open society and that hard work can be rewarded. And that is true. We have more opportunity to do that here than most places in the history of the world. But at the same time, we discount how much just where we were born, what family, what community we were born into influences that. We don't think about how much of a head start we get and we have this tendency to think that people that are well off somehow must have deserved that, must have earned all of that, and people that are poor must have some deficiency. There must be some reason, you know, if they would only do this, if they would only do that. That's not necessarily true, and that's not the way God looks at things. He doesn't look at the firsts and lasts of the world the same way we do. So we have this this picture of this guy who, in everything in the world's eyes, he must be doing right, and he obviously has this good resume of doing everything right. But when it comes down to it and Jesus tells him what he needs him to do, he goes away sad because he has great wealth. The disciples are like, "Uh uh-oh, if this rich guy who had it all together... If he doesn't get into the kingdom, what about us? I mean, we, we did give up what we had. We gave up our fish stand. We, you know, we're no longer down on the corner selling fish fillet sandwiches with special mustard sauce. That's kind of dry and not that good. We're, we're following you. Gave up the tax collector business. Gave up the revolutionary business. Follow you. What about us? Jesus said, I tell you what, if you gave up Anyone who's given up anything to follow me, you will have an inheritance. And for these 12, by the way, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And you're going to receive more back. Now, part of that is going to come through your membership in the family. By the way, you gave up your property. Well, guess what? You're going to be part of a big family and have access to all that property. And you're going to have you're going to have an inheritance in the kingdom. And he says, I'll tell you what this is like. This is like this man who owns a vineyard. And Jerusalem was often compared to the prophets, by the prophets, not just Jerusalem, sorry. Uh, Israel as a whole was often talked about by the prophets as a vineyard. Sometimes as a horrible vineyard, sometimes as a vineyard run by horrible people, but the vineyard would be recognized. As soon as he said, the kingdom of God is like a vineyard, everybody would go, aha, I recognize this. This is prophetic language. And it's like this vineyard. And the owner went out at the beginning of the day, hiring some day laborers, went down to work ready or whatever they had there. And he's like, I'll take you guys, come on. 
gets them working in the field, and at about nine in the morning, he goes up, I'll go find some more people. Does that throughout the day till five o'clock. And at five o'clock, he finds some more people, and he says, why are you still here? Nobody hired us. Come out and work. You wouldn't miss this in the story. Those last people's there, probably they're there and no one hired them. Do you remember in elementary school when you would play kickball or dodgeball or some other sadistic exercise inflicted on you by your teachers? They would do this thing where they would pick two really popular people and make them captains of teams and have them, you pick, you pick, you pick, you pick, and... They would work their way down. And it was not a good thing if you were one of the last people left. If you were the last kid picked, this was not a mark of honor. You were the last pick of the seventh round of the draft. That's who these people are. These are the people that everybody has looked at and going, um, no, I'll take the blind guy instead. That's, 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 that's who's left. But he says, you, you, you too, come. You, you work in my vineyard. And then we get to the part that's, that's inherently grating to us and would be inherently grating to them. When it comes time to pay everybody, they start with the people the last and they give them a denarius. So everybody that agreed to work for a denarius earlier is thinking, well, you know, if he's given them that, I must be in for something to get the denarius. It's what you agreed to work for. Why are you upset? I haven't, I haven't cheated you. I gave you what I said I'd give you. I recognize the spiritual import of what Jesus is saying here. However, I also know myself well enough to know that if I was there, I would be going, really? Really? They're getting the same thing? I've been in that position. And part of you just goes, you know, we're all getting the same thing. Did you not see them over at the water fountain all day while we were hard working? I've, I've been that guy. But that's not what the kingdom's like. The kingdom is, you're in the kingdom. You get that full reward no matter what time you came in. And there is a lot going on in this statement. I've stayed away from that phrase for a while, so I can come back to it now. It works in a number of ways. If you think you are one of the people who has been devoting your life to God, if you're, say, a Pharisee, and you have lived your whole life devoted as best you know to God, and you see these tax collectors coming and sitting down with Jesus, that's what this is about. You've been devoting your life to God. They're just coming lately, and somehow they're on the same footing with God. Yep. That's exactly what it's like. As the church expands, there's going to be tension. We see it in the book of Romans between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jews are, the promise came to us through Abraham. We have been God's people all along. We have been preserving the traditions of God. We've been keeping the knowledge of God alive. And now you're telling us that in the church, these guys that were sacrificing pigs to, to Zeus last week are the same as us? And Paul will say, yep. Gave them a denarius too. 
In the book of 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he is near the end of his life, and he goes, says, I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but all those who have longed for his appearing. That's the hope that Paul has. He has had a life of service to Jesus, and he is expecting that crown of life as a reward. There's another person. If we go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 23, in verse 42, there's a thief next to Jesus on the cross who has spent his whole life not serving God. But he's on the cross next to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus tells him, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. This isn't, get, this isn't getting hired at 5 o'clock. This is getting hired at 5.59 and still getting paid the denarius because that's what the kingdom is. The reward of the kingdom is because we're loved, not because of the work we do for the kingdom. It is important when we come into the kingdom that we're, when we're hired that we do work. But what gets us in, what gets us that reward is just that we're loved. It's okay to be the last kid picked.